Hello and welcome to the brand new podcast series from the Trainee and Members Committee at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr Adeline McLeod and I'm Chair of the Trainee Members Committee of the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh and I'm really excited about the new series that we have for you today. Thanks Addy. Hello, I am Ilsa Oswald, the Vice Chair for Education for the Trainee and Members Committee of the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh. And I'm also an oncology registrar working in South East Scotland. I've been involved in developing the podcasts with another member of the committee, Anda. Hello and thank you, Elsa. I'm Anda Blagan. I'm currently a clinical research fellow in cardiology at the University of Edinburgh. I'm also a co-opted member of the trainee and members committee at the Royal College of Physicians, Edinburgh. Thanks, Anda. Given that this is a new podcast series brought to you by the trainees and members committee, I thought it'd be good to give listeners a brief introduction into who we are and some of the work that we do. So I've been on the I've been on the TMC now for around two years, and the committee comprises of over 20 doctors from throughout the UK. The majority of our committee members are post-MRCP, but we do also have associate members who are pre-MRCP and medical students on the committee as well. Anda and I have been mainly involved in the education work stream within the committee. This involves organising events such as the evening medical updates, which are broadcast every month, and the annual medical trainee conference, which is usually held in January. There are other work streams within the committee, including careers, communications and representation. Examples of this include representing trainees' views for the change to the internal medicine training curriculum and also the less than full-time training report. You can find out a lot more information about the Trainee and Members Committee online on the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh's website. So these podcasts are a new and exciting part of our education work, developed by the TMC, but with great support from the college. And uh, why don't you talk through how these podcasts came about and what our plans are with them going forward? Of course. So the college and the TMC have been working hard over the past few months and we had to adapt the way we deliver our educational resources. This in turn has led to new exciting opportunities. It all started with a podcast series called COVID-19 Conversations back in April this year. These were successfully developed by Dr. Adeline McLeod, the TMC Chair, and Dr. Rachel Sutherland, Vice Chair for Career and Communications. Over the past few months, Adi and Rachel interviewed colleagues and physicians on the front line to hear the latest guidance and advice on COVID-19 and the response to the pandemic. The podcasts have been received with great and positive feedback by our listeners. So as a result, we were keen to take this idea forward and turn it into clinical conversations. Our aim is to provide up-to-date, flexible and easily accessible resources to complement the existing educational opportunities provided by the Royal College of Physicians, Edinburgh. We will be discussing a multitude of clinical topics ranging from interesting medical cases to diagnostic dilemmas and updates on current clinical guidelines. These podcasts will be relevant for doctors at all stages in their career path or training. In addition, we will also be covering important topics related to clinical development, for example, training, exams, and anything about career progress. We welcome you to join us in listening to Clinical Conversations. Thanks, Anda. For our first episode, we thought we would discuss medical training, given that it's very topical at the moment as it's the the beginning of August and therefore change over month for many doctors. 
Our first clinical podcast will be released in two weeks' time, and this will be on proteinuria and nephrotic syndrome. For our podcast today, we are delighted that Dr. Baker has agreed to speak with us on clinical training. Okay, so thank you very much, Elsa. It's a great pleasure and really it's an honour to welcome our first guest for the Clinical Conversations podcast series, Dr. Kerry Baker. Dr. Baker is a consultant in acute medicine in NHS 5, and she's also the training programme director for internal medicine, known as IMT, and general internal medicine. For many years, Dr. Baker led the core medical training programme and has worked closely with the transition between these two. Dr. Baker was also a member of the Royal College of Physicians, Trainees and Members Committee, and has always been passionate about education, training and development. We will be covering a number of topics related to training, and also as Elsa mentioned earlier, it has changed over month, and after an in interesting few months in the current circumstances, we had new doctors starting on the wards last week. So welcome Dr. Baker, and thank you for joining me today. I would be grateful if we can start with you describing your current role as training programme director and what does this involve? Uh, thank you very much Anna, and thank you so much to the Trainees and Members Committee for inviting me and for that kind introduction. Uh, yep, as you say I've been a training programme director for a number of years and that was originally for core medical training which now has obviously become internal medicine training um, and I am also the same role for general internal medicine training for the registrars along with Jane Reimer, who's my co-CPD. And that role involves uh, every aspect, I suppose, of training from the initial interviews and recruitment through to developing your programmes and rotations to managing your final appraisals and ARCPs and seeing you through the other side. During it, we uh, liaise with trainees and supervisors to make sure that your training is going as smoothly as possible, identifying any concerns, helping signpost people to uh, to help where necessary, for example, occupational health, performance supports. We manage your study leave budget, which is always popular. <laughs> we organise training days. So a, a lovely range. Um, and during that, we get to know many of our trainees pretty well, which is the most enjoyable aspect of it. Yeah, uh, that's lovely. Uh, before we cover some aspects of current training, Dr. Baker, I was wondering um, if you can tell us a bit more about the changes that you've experienced in training over years and how did these uh, really change and shape where we are at present? Of course. Um, so the very first training reform that I was involved with was modernising medical careers when I was a trainee and that um, started in two thousand and. Five, although particularly uh, was a particular implemented in 2007, which was just when I was applying to become an ST3. And that, that was the very first cohort of ST3s ever existing. And the main themes of MMC were a shortening of the overall duration of training because there was a keenness to create more consultants, the introduction of run through training which at the time was felt that it would streamline and smooth processes, but actually just reduced flexibility. And the introduction of an online application called MTAS, uh, Medical Training Application um, System, which turned out into a bit of a disaster with major uh, data breaches. Um, and indeed, there was a, a big review undertaken that took us to the courts afterwards. And at the time, I remember that reform being extremely stressful. It was quite dramatic for a lot of trainees. It created a huge amount of uncertainty. And that was the reason I became involved with the Trainees and Members Committee, because I remember feeling quite angry about it. 
but realising quite early on that the best way of affecting change was to be part of it rather than complaining from the sidelines. So that was the year that I joined the Trainees and Members Committee and a couple of years later became chair and we, we participated in the reviews. The most familiar training reform that everyone here will now know is Shape of Training, which ultimately is the implementation of internal medicine training. And work for that began in 2013 and was resulted in IMT ones being recruited last year. So that's just begun. And I think the basic basis behind that is fundamentally sound. A lot of it is around preparation for being a medreg because we know that uh, consistently through the years, trainees have uh, felt un unprepared for this and actually it chases a few very good trainees away from medicine because they're so worried about the medical registrar rule. It focuses on building more thorough generalist skills, recognising that the population of the UK needs a generalist. I can't think of the last time I met a patient in Fife where they had a single organ condition, for example. Yeah. Um, I'm biased as a, as a generalist myself, but we're developing generalist skills with an increased focus on chronic disease management, for example, in outpatient clinics as well as now mandating very important generalist areas such as acute medicine, geriatrics and, and critical care. And a number of specialties have now joined that that previously wouldn't have done internal medicine training beyond their first few years. So that includes neurology, palliative care, gum and rheumatology, really recognising that those specialties have patients with multi-system chronic disease and do need a solid foundation in, in general internal medicine. Yes. Well, I think you, that was going to be my next question, but I think you really well summarised the drivers for this change between core medical training and also IMT. Mm. Um, as you said, IMT was implemented in August last year, following a lot mm. of discussions and preparations. It's now been a year, although I do appreciate the circumstances in the past few months have changed. But can you tell me a bit how has the past year felt how do you think IMT was started and what are your hopes for the next few years? Of course. So naturally we approached this, this with some trepidation, remembering the fallout from MMC and previous reforms. And it was really important to us that we didn't have a replay of that. And that although all reforms create some destabilisation, we wanted the process to go as smoothly as possible for our trainees. And then a pandemic happened. And yet remarkably, uh, the IMT ones appear to have done brilliantly and it's been a much smoother process than I think you might have anticipated for such enormous changes in the current climate. So we've recently had our, uh, our ARCPs, the Annual Review of Competence uh, Progression, and those appraisals are a good thermometer for how the year has gone. And the trainees did phenomenally well in meeting their curriculum requirements, despite working in such a limited atmosphere at the moment. And obviously things like exams have been on pause through no fault of anyone's, but actually people have still been managing to meet their curriculum, despite it being brand new and despite working in a challenging environment. So I think it's been a real success. The first lot of critical care blocks will be happening from this year, so we haven't had a taste of that yet. So that remains a significant unknown. But in terms of what's gone well, people have engaged very well with the new ePortfolio. That includes supervisors who may struggle even more with changes from what they're used to. Yeah. Uh, I think people have engaged with the ePortfolio being less of a tick box, tick box exercise. So Andy, you'll remember very well from CMT that the curriculum was massive and you had to have evidence for 
vomiting and paralysis and genital yeah. urinary ulceration and, and it became slightly ridiculous like reading every page of a textbook and reporting back whereas now there's a much more pragmatic approach which is can this trainee be trusted to manage the take when I go home at night can this trainee competently run a clinic in the room next door to me for example and I think that's a much more sensible real world approach and so far the signs are that trainees and trainers are really engaging with that process well. Yes it's lovely to hear that feedback and as I say many exciting changes and changes that were required um, I guess a lot of these will also be happening in IMT year three um, am I right um, is there anything in specific that we're expecting that year because that's really the, the year where um, we prepare for red charge role but in a kind of nice supervised environment um, is there specific preparation uh IM3 developments are happening at the moment. Uh, we would have liked to have it fleshed out before this, but actually the time when that would have happened was during the peak of the pandemic. And most of us in training became fully clinical during that time and we lost yeah. all of our dean time temporarily. So that's been on hold and that's a priority being picked up at the, at the moment with national work. So it's difficult to say exactly what that will look like, uh, but it's likely that it will involve two six month posts it's likely that we'll try and give people a balance of central and, and peripheral hospitals. Um, and as you say, it will be really focusing on preparedness for a medical registrar, including acting up as med reg on the acute take. And some trainees will already be doing that in more junior stages, but this really formalizes the process. Um, and otherwise focusing on getting those final points for your applications for later higher specialty training. And I hope that as many trainees will take it on as possible. For those who want to do stage two training, they don't have to do a third year, that's voluntary, but I think there'll be certainly some benefits. I don't think anyone has ever gone to an interview in medicine and thought, I regret being more experienced than my competition. Exactly. So I bet staying on for a year, becoming a more confident medical registrar, getting a little bit more under your belt in terms of not just experience, but teaching and quality improvement and so forth will give people more to talk about interview so i'm hopeful that most of our cohort would want to stay on with us for that journey and then apply to either group one or group two specialties after the end of year three but we don't know for sure so we will be also gathering data on numbers fairly soon about what people plan to do so dr baker talking about imt3 and i know there's uh, trainees who uh, completed CMT or, or doing um, time out for fellowships, research teaching, and they will want to come back to higher specialty training. And I know that we now have to go back to IMT3. Is there any news or changes on what, what's the process about that? When do we need to apply? Sure, thanks, Andra. I think that's a really important question. Uh, we know that higher specialty recruitment next August will be very limited. And for years thereafter, trainees will need to have done the equivalent of stage one IMT, which is the three year programme, to be eligible to apply for higher training because higher training will start at ST4 level rather than ST3 as it has done. And so that means that trainees who've completed CMT and ACCS in the last couple of years and wish to come back will need to complete an IM year three. People should have already been asked to register an expression of interest and that means once you've done so that you're kept in the loop with emails but also it helps us with planning numbers and if you've not done that already you can find that on the IMT recruitment webpage and if any difficulty with that you can contact your previous TPD. Uh, 
I'm Year 3 standalone posts will start from next August to 2021. We know that uh, we are going to try and offer people posts close to where they worked before. The official guidance is that it might not be possible to work in the original region, but priority will be given to applicants who have completed CMT or ACCS in that region. So wherever possible, we'd try, for example, to give you Southeast Scotland if you've worked in Southeast Scotland, but if not, the broader region is Scotland. Um, and likely the people applying now would be applying for 2021, but there will probably be standalone posts for the next couple of years as well. The applications open on the 1st of October and close later on in October, so that's actually pretty soon. So it's worthwhile reading up about that soon. And to do that, you go to the IMT recruitment web page, um, and that site has a specific page for IM Year 3 recruitment, which gives you all of the information and, and um, deadlines, etc. Lovely, that's very useful information, Dr Baker. We will add the link as well, uh, just below this podcast. Great. So I guess there's uh, foundation doctors who are changing over and starting and I remember from earlier days that you're, we were always told, you know, um, it's good to start and think about what you want to do in advance. And I was hoping you can give us a bit of advice uh, in terms of um, uh, trainees who plan to apply for IMT at some point in the next year or next couple of years. When should they start thinking about it and what things should they consider? Uh, so this might be depressing advice, but my advice is think about it as early as possible. <laughs> and that's because if you start nibbling away at things early over a sustained pattern, it creates less pressure at the end. So my tip would be very early on to look at the IMT recruitment web pages because they tell you how the applications work and how the interviews work. And specifically for the applications, they tell you how points are scored. So if very early on into foundation training, you've already cited where the points will be, you can plan over the next year or so what your focus might be. And some things might be unrealistic. Some things will say, well, you what extra points for an additional postgraduate degree, that's unrealistic during foundation. But actually some things will include developing a teaching programme, which you could do with your peers, for example, or presenting a QI project. And that's very achievable, but only if you plan it in advance. If you wait a couple of weeks before recruitment opens, you're not gonna have that window. So I would suggest looking early and think strategically, where do the points lie? We do put a lot of emphasis on, um, on suitability and kind of dedication to, to career. So we want to see people at interview who are enthusiastic and have showed an interest in medicine. So that includes things like uh, showing that you have listened to podcasts or joined evening medical updates, for example. So collecting evidence as you go along is really useful. And I think people forget that particularly in the early stages people attend things and you maybe lose the certificate and forget the relevance but actually if you have a folder tucked away somewhere either a paper folder or on your computer uh, storing away every little certificate and every bit of evidence of things that you've done that can be really useful down the line to bring out when it comes to applications. Lovely and it's great to know that the e-portfolios um, are in line with that as well as you said. Yep. Um, now I think we we talked, um, you know, about IMT and changes. I know that also you've been involved in supporting and guiding clinical development fellows. And over mm -hmm. the past few years, there's have been increasing opportunities for trainees to, to take time outside the, the usual training path and work in these roles of clinical development fellow, but also 
some other opportunities such as teaching or research. And all these aim to complement our training and to help our career and development. What is your opinion and experience of these? And would you advise trainees to consider something like this? Uh, and I think it's a really personal choice, but I am very supportive of fellow programmes because I think they give people a bit of flexibility and a chance to get off what can sometimes feel like a bit of a, a training hamster wheel that goes faster and faster over time. Uh, interestingly, all the reforms that have been developed in training try to streamline and try to smooth people through in a run-through type way. And a lot of that was designed because it was felt that uh, trainees, senior house officers at the time, were a lost tribe and were stuck out of training. But what we're learning over time is that people like to take a bit of time out, taking a pause, to breathe, to collect your thoughts, to develop a specialist interest, and often to decide what you want to do. And I would encourage trainees in foundation or IMT not to despair if they don't know what they want to do next and if they don't know what their specialty choice is going to be because that's actually incredibly common. When I graduated I wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon and even when I was the equivalent of a core medical trainee I wanted to be a gastroenterologist. Uh, so um, you definitely have no expectation to necessarily know just now how your career is going to pan out. So some people will know and will want to go all the way through and will want to become a consultant as soon as possible. And that's absolutely fine. If you don't know or you would like a little bit more time, I think a fellow post is a really viable and positive way to do that. And that means using that year in a focused way to think about what you want out of that time. Some people just want time out of training and a pause and not to do very much else. That's also allowed. Uh, it's still a clinical post. It brings experience. It gives you things to talk about at interviews. But the best use of fellow time, I think, uses the protected development time to uh, do further work, either in quality improvement or in teaching. And because you're usually attached to one post for a year, that gives you big benefits that training posts and foundation and IMT don't give you, which is continuity within one team and thus time to really get your teeth into a bigger project. So for example, in Fife, our previous fellows have done some major uh, restructuring work at our front door, introducing triage systems to our acute medicine units and have been able to present that at international conferences. We have had fellows who have developed really quite ambitious undergraduate uh, simulation teaching programs, for example. And those things give you more confidence. They can give you points when you're applying to your next training program. And they, carry through that experience right through to becoming a consultant where you have other things to talk about. So I think there's a lot to be gained from it. However, if you already have all the points on your application form and you know what specialty you want to go for, there's absolutely no reason why not to just go straight through. Um, I went straight through my training and at the time it felt like the right thing for me. But at the flip side, I became a consultant at 30. And then I suppose my question was, oh, I'm, I'm here, <laughs> what, what, what am I meant to do now? Uh, so I'd encourage people not to feel like there's a rush, not to be afraid to take a pause if you wish, but also not to look at all your peers who are doing fellowships and feel that you have to do one if the gut, your gut instinct is you want to continue with training. Okay. And um, I know we touched on this already, Dr. Baker, and I suppose mm -hmm. um, another part of application process and, um, you know, thinking about our personal development development is our leadership skills and I know in fact when I applied for ST3 that was one of the requirements as well so mm -hmm. I think um, uh, for me definitely uh, doing some CMT work and also being part of the trainees and members committee gives me the opportunity to learn from my fellow peers and 
I know you already talked about this, but you were a chair, the chair of the Trainees and Members Committee and the Royal College of Physicians, Edinburgh. Can you tell us a bit how this has um, impacted on your uh, future career and also um, aspirations? Thanks, Andrew. Um, I think it's had a phenomenal impact, actually. So very quickly, it taught me a lot more about the organisation and governance of that in which we work that you don't really get exposed to in the same way as a trainee. And that includes an understanding of the politics behind it and of the massive machine that is postgraduate medical education and training. So understanding a lot about the system uh, generates the ability to change things, uh, but I think it also breeds further interest. So I have no doubt that if, uh, if I hadn't done that role, I probably wouldn't have ended up in the same job I am just now in terms of my non-clinical mm -hmm. aspect. Um, so I learned a lot about training. It gave me more passion for it. I learned how to develop strategy, how to write documents and interview, for example, for the press. Uh, so familiar with interacting with media, familiar with being put on the spot like you're doing with me today. Yeah, <laughs> you're great at this. <laughs> how to lead and organise a committee. And it can be really difficult. Uh, leading a group of doctors is like trying to herd cats sometimes. Uh, so those are really useful skills. You can apply those to anything later on in your career, but certainly they were incredibly useful for postgraduate education. And I think I probably wouldn't have ended up as a training programme director if I hadn't had that experience within the committee. It gave me a passion for it and it gave me an understanding that actually really interested, passionate people can improve the system. And that's exactly what we need from everyone that takes on these roles. So I do see the trainees and members committee as a bit of a breeding ground for leadership. Um, other roles that people would be able to do from it would be medical management would be a natural one. And although that's not been the rule for me, I know other people have gone through similar roles or people might want to take on undergraduate roles. Uh, but I think it's an excellent stepping stone. It gives you very good generic skills that you can apply to multiple other areas. So excellent transferable skills and a really great opportunity. Uh, I, I really fondly remember my time on the Trainees and Members Committee. It was hard work, but it was worth it. Yeah, it's, it's great to hear that. And it's just amazing, I think, to see how many opportunities we have uh, you yeah. know, to complement our training and to, yeah. to really learn from role models. Now, uh, it's been as we said, different and quite challenging few months. And we had help on, on clinical work from medical students, trainees, mm. and everyone's, the feedback I hear, everyone's just been great at what they've been doing. And now change of August is our usual changeover and we're all happy that's happening. Um, what advice do you give new doctors? How, how to, you know, I remember those first few days filled with excitement, but also, a bit of anxiety how do we overcome that those normal feelings and what how, how do we succeed in the first few weeks especially sure uh, so yeah we all remember those times even aging consultants like myself can remember those first few days really clearly um, so I think the first thing is to use and talk to your colleagues it feels like a very individual frightening experience but the teams that you are joining have all been through exactly the same and that goes to the FY2s all the way through to consultants so we can all remember being there. Trees mustn't compare themselves to them so I see 
the medical students and brand new FY1s look at the outgoing FY1s and think, oh my goodness, I'm not as organized as them. I don't have as good time management skills. How do they do it? But you've got to remember that they're a year ahead and they've gone up a steep learning curve. So never compare yourself to the people that you're replacing because they have a head start. Talk to your colleagues, talk to people if you're struggling, talk to people about the things that you're enjoying and also not enjoying, because we've all been there and we've all felt similar and had similar burdens and, and hurdles to overcome. In terms of how it translates into clinical practice, I think we see people handle it in a variety of ways. People are generally are new juniors have been phenomenal, but it's natural when people are under a lot of pressure that they might become stressed. And we all know that when we're stressed, we might sometimes be a bit snappy or a bit short or a bit impatient. That's just human nature. So I always find that I would talk to myself and say, I need to treat every patient like I would want my mum treated. And I think you can apply that to anyone. I, I would want my mum or my brother or my spouse, my kid, how would I want them treated? And if you use that as your guiding principle, you will always do the right thing by patients. Even if you don't know clinically the answer, just treating them as a fellow human being and as you would want your own family to be treated means that you will be a good doctor. I think getting organised early. So in terms of training, it's important to familiarise yourself quite early with the needs of your curriculum and e-portfolio. And that's hard, especially in the first few weeks when you're also trying to learn the workplace. But the sooner you can start understanding your training requirements for the year ahead, you can start to gradually nibble away at it. And that will save a lot of pressure towards the end of the year. And naturally, many of us procrastinate. It's the same for consultant appraisal. Um, and I am probably just as prone to that as anyone else. But definitely starting early, knowing what you need from the year ahead and starting to plan for it can take the pressure off in the long term. And then I think probably my most important advice is that you only have one of you. So you need to be kind to yourself. And that includes prioritizing downtime and using it wisely and that can be really hard when you are adjusting to a new training program for some of the more senior trainees at IMT that will include um, sitting exams or writing papers and it's easy for that to consume all of your time but actually stress and burnout is increasingly common and the NHS needs you as a working functioning doctor for many years to come so it's not selfish for you to prioritize time for yourself so that means choosing some downtime, even if you're studying, for example, choosing a day a week or choosing a weekend that you're going to protect and you're going to do positive things with. And that includes socialising, but we all naturally tend to socialise with other doctors because of our shared experience and shift patterns, etc. So that can also mean you don't get much time away from thinking about medicine. So also using cognitive downtime to relax, read a book, do exercise to get some of those stress-beating endorphins, get some time outdoors so that you get sunlight for your circadian rhythm and vitamin D, avoiding over-reliance and things like caffeine to get through the working day or alcohol to recover from it, um, and, and using that positive time to remember that you're not just a doctor, you're not only a doctor, you've got to focus on yourself as a human being as well. Well, I think that really summarises it all very well. And thank you so much. I think that's great advice. And, you know, as you said, it's very important to look after each other and also to look after ourselves. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Baker. Uh, it's great. It's been a great pleasure talking to you and just finding out all those tips and also describing uh, the training path. And um, I hope you all find this interesting and you can join us for our future podcasts. Thank you. <laughs> 
thank you so much, Hannah. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.